Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Center for Baptist Renewal podcast. I'm Matt Emerson, and I'm one of the directors for CBR. And today we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Arnold. Uh, Dr. Arnold is an associate professor of church history and historical theology in the School of Theology and director of research doctoral studies at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, just in case you don't know, uh, CBR is a group of Orthodox Evangelical Baptists committed to retrieving the great tradition for the renewal of Baptist faith and practice. And if you enjoy what you hear today, we invite you to check out our website, centerforbaptistrenewal.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Baptist Renewal and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Baptist Renewal. And of course, if you want to, uh, please do subscribe and tell your friends about the podcast. And so in today's show, uh, Dr. Arnold is joining us to discuss our next book in our 2022 CBR Reading Challenge, which is Benjamin Keach's Gold Refined. Uh, as I've mentioned already, Dr. Arnold teaches at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is an expert on Benjamin Keach. His dissertation, uh, The Reformed Theology of Benjamin Keach, was published in 2013 by the Center for Baptist Studies. Uh, he is also uh, uh, authored a number of works related to historical theology, both in, in general and related to Baptist thought and practice, and particularly about Benjamin Keach. Um, he's a member of ETS, uh, the International Conference on Baptist Studies, the Society for Reformation Studies, and he's a fellow at the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies and a visiting fellow for the Oxford, Oxford Center for Baptist Studies. So we're excited to have you on, uh, Dr. Arnold. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, and thanks for even bringing Keach into the the wider realm. It's a great move on your part. Yeah, well, I, I love Keach for a variety of reasons, uh, most especially because, uh, as as someone else put it, who I think you 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 appreciate, but also slightly disagree with, um, DB Riker. Uh, he's called he's called Keach a, a reformed Catholic theologian, um, Catholic with a small C. Um, yeah. And I think you articulate things slightly differently, but both of you, I think, show how Keach is connected to the to the great tradition, which is what I so much appreciate about Keach. Um, today, uh, another thing I really appreciate about Keach is that I think this the, the work we're going to discuss here in a few minutes, Gold Refined, I think it's the best defense of credo baptism I have ever read. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> I had a, a pastor friend in the state uh, here who texted me one day and said, I've got a, I've got a guy in my church. He's trying to figure out, you know, does he still believe in infant baptism? Um, he's, he's kind of trying to understand the believer's baptism position. What would you recommend to him? And I immediately was just like, Keach, gold refined. It, the language is kind of weird in some places, yeah, but it's, it, you, it's understandable. And I think it, it's unparalleled in terms of just the comprehensiveness of the argument, the, the way he uses scripture and all that stuff. So I love Keach. Uh, I know you love Keach. So why don't you start us off by telling a little bit, telling us a little bit about his life and ministry? Sure. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right on on gold refined, and we'll get to that in a, a minute. But uh, Keach serves as a as a great uh, entry point into Baptist and the tradition, and Baptist as they uh, engage with others because of his background. So he's born in 1640 uh, and is raised in a a Christian home. Uh, his brothers and he all become general Baptists early in his life. Uh, and so he actually begins his ministry on that side of things. Uh, so holding to a, a general view of the atonement, 
and then we'll have a conversion uh, later on uh, when he marries his uh, second wife. His first wife passed away, uh, marries his second wife, moves to London, and uh, it has a conversion on that particular particular issue, no pun intended, uh, moves from the general Baptist side of things to the particular Baptist side. Uh, but as he's doing that, pastoring several uh, different congregations before he gets to to London and then uh, in London, uh, finds himself at Southwark and uh, is, uh, they're just on the south side of the Thames and is uh, engaged in, in congregational ministry there. And it's uh, as he's making that conversion amongst that group of, of Baptists that he has joined there in London, seeking some sort of shelter in the midst of uh, fairly intense persecution in the middle of the 17th century in London. Uh, it's during that time when he makes that conversion that he will continue to, to hold uh, some of his connections with the General Baptists, which allows him, I think, uh, to really have a, a long, much longer legacy than just those that are within the, say, the, the signatories of the Second London Confession, uh, which he he is and he holds to that, uh, but he is very willing to see on the other side. While he he sees uh, a problem with his previous view, he's still willing to have conversations with them, and that plays out in major ways, not just in his own ministry, but even in the ministry of his successor and son-in-law, uh, where the the particular Baptists and General Baptists that remain Orthodox are able to come together and really develop uh, quite a um, rapport with each other and do a, a lot of cooperative ministry uh, that has uh, a long a long lasting effect in London and, and beyond. So uh, Keach is really the, the one that that uh, sets the, the table for that, despite some other problems that he has. So he's well known for his uh, hymn singing controversy, which uh, he's the defender of the singing of hymns, uh, specifically of hymns that are, are not just uh, biblical language. So he writes a ton of hymns during his uh, ministry, all of which are bad, uh, but they are <laughs> intended to be theologically driven songs that that line up with what he's preaching every week. Uh, and so uh, he defends that practice. It splits his church. He has a couple of other splits in his church, and there's some uh, some issues that go on there. So he's, he's not a perfect figure by any means uh, and certainly has uh, quite a bit of opportunity to, to grow even in his lifetime. Uh, but he does do a great job of uh, continuing to hold to uh, orthodoxy. What he sees, and the point of my dissertation was to define what he saw as uh, Protestant Reformed Orthodoxy. And mm -hmm. that's uh, ultimately where he stands. Yeah. So, you know, in addition to all those various ways that Keach ministered, led, uh, was, was even involved in, in the political life in some respects uh, of his country and of his region, uh, he also wrote a lot uh, and, and some of these works that, that he's written are, are very influential even today, um, not necessarily in terms of their use explicitly, but in the way that they've influenced other Baptist works. So could you give us just a general sense of maybe the, the major works uh, that Keach has written and how they've, they've influenced Baptist life and thought? Sure, yeah. The one, sure, sorry about that. The one yeah. that he is most, uh, probably most well known for in his lifetime, well, uh, as far as uh, theological work, strictly a theological work, is uh, Tropologia, which uh, is one of the better versions of, uh, of a hermeneutic textbook, basically, is what he's trying to do with it uh, in his lifetime. It's one that uh, needs to see the light of day again in, a, in some sort of a, a edited fashion or critical fashion. Uh, yes. 
I don't know if somebody I've, I've had multiple conversations. I know I've had conversations with you about doing that. And uh, yeah. I, I think there are people that are on board uh, with it. So hopefully that will come around, especially as we're, we're starting to gain uh, an interest in uh, returning to some of our Baptist forebears. So uh, I do know of another um, project that's uh, focusing on Thomas Grantham and trying to get a critical edition of his oh, work out. Uh, so uh, hopefully that will set the stage then for some of these others. But he also wrote uh, a ton of uh, sermons that he published and was able to, to get those uh, in the public sphere. Uh, so he was well known for multiples of his uh, works, especially on justification. Uh, so uh, he uh, wrote a gold mine uh, opened, I think is the title of it. Sorry, I'm going to... Um, go blank on some of those titles. They yeah, get there, there's a lot. I think. <laughs> um, but he's also well known for his uh, allegories. So before Bunyan was popular with Pilgrim's Progress, uh, he writes a couple of allegories that actually, uh, as I've been able to, to demonstrate, actually goes back and is a better seller than Bunyan to begin with. Now, Bunyan <laughs> takes over, obviously, and lasts, and Bunyan's connection with uh, John Owen will help him in that uh, but it's it's uh, the early versions from Keats, so Travels of True Godliness, uh, and then his uh, follow-up to that, that will allow him to uh, to be really in that uh, um, in that world of allegories, and, and very similar. It feels very much like Pilgrim's Progress. I like them better, but, you know, I'm just a Keats guy, so... Right. Um, but he has a whole host so of, of works on baptism. So this work, Gold Refined, Lightbrook Forth in Wales, that he publishes in 1696. Uh, and ultimately, this 1690s era, the decade, is really his go-to. He publishes almost every single year, he publishes a, a, a book-length manuscript. And these aren't uh, necessarily small works. These are, are full-on um, volumes that are, are well worth the read. Uh, and he's just constantly coming at it. So he's a polemicist. Uh, he's a pastor at heart in, in everything he does. He's a pastor at heart looking at his uh, audience as readers, uh, as part of his congregation, but also really, you can tell he's writing for those people that are regularly hearing yeah. him. And then he's overseeing. Um, right. So he deals with all kinds of, of issues across there. But do, some, do you think do you think yeah. that uh, his church read all thousand pages of Tropologia? Uh, <laughs> I doubt it. I uh, I would. My guess is that that one is used mostly in the the Baptist schools that are started around the time, and I yep, think that's yep. really what he's aiming for. Uh, and then you know, his son-in-law will start the first uh, Baptist school in London, uh, private school there, what we would call private school there in London, uh, alongside the other congregate the other the other uh, denominations. So the three denominations, the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, and the Baptists will come together and his son-in-law will lead that. Uh, and I think they use that actually as a textbook. So uh, that's really what they're looking for in that yeah. one. Good. So. Yeah. And so uh, the the main, I think, influence that Keech has had on Baptist thought that we can trace fairly explicitly is his catechism um, that then, you know, yeah. uh, really through his son. Um comes to the American colonies and is influential. Um, but it, it's amazing to go back and read his other stuff um, and, and see where, where Baptists have sort of followed him uh, intellectually, conceptually, and where they haven't. Um, yeah. So the, the catechism is a whole week. We could have a long conversation on that. Yep. He writes several of them. Uh, the, the one that normally gets labeled as his, is the Keech catechism. I'm not 
certain is actually his. Uh, it doesn't really line up with the rest of them, uh, but it's it's definitely in the same same field, same vein. Uh, but he puts out several different versions of his of the ones that we know for sure are his. Uh, some of them obviously directed at Baptists, uh, some of them not, and he so he leaves out the the mm-hmm. doctrine of baptism uh, in the ones that he's aiming for a broader uh, audience, which I find to be very intriguing, especially given the work we're reading today, Gold right. Refined, and his obvious defense of baptism uh, and his push that that is is clearly a marker of the true church. So yep. Yep. a really yep. interesting move on his part. Yeah. And so, you know, lots of lots of different conversations we could have about yeah. Keach. He's a fascinating figure. Uh, I mean, in, in all kinds of ways. Right. I mean, we've just talked about sort of his thought, but I mean, even his life um, in terms of the political sort of trouble he gets in or almost gets in in terms of, you know, yeah. fifth, fifth Marcus and that sort of thing. Um, he's just well, a, he's he, a fascinating guy. He's dragged out of the pulpit at one point in his life yeah. uh, as he's preaching. The the government officials come in and drag him out, pull him behind a horse. So, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he has experienced it all and in the end stays true to his beliefs and, and is very much concerned about uh, the, the spiritual formation of his congregation. Right. So let's uh, let's then shift to dealing specifically with the text that we're talking about today, which is gold refined. Uh, so I think it'd be helpful to start with just kind of a a, a general sense of the work, uh, an outline maybe, and then any key arguments that you think are worth mentioning. Uh, and I, I would also really like to focus in, if we have time, on the demonstration of Keech's exegetical and hermeneutical method, because I think there are some places in gold refined where they're not, they're not atypical arguments for baptism, but they're not the kinds of ways that you would necessarily cite scripture today in defending a particular position, including credo baptism. So uh, let's start. If you, if you don't mind just giving us kind of a general sense of the work, including an outline. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So so he starts with uh, his chapter one is just outlining uh, the the command for baptism, which in, in and of itself, I mean, that could be a whole conversation by itself. Looking at uh, the, the Great Commission is really what he's looking at, uh, which doesn't have a, a massively long history of being uh, applied to uh, the contemporaries. Often that was only applied to uh, the apostles. And so even his willingness to jump in here, we, we could go all, all in on that. Uh, but he uh, starts there by giving the broad overview of the church's goal, the church's role uh, in its continuing mission of following Christ's great commission uh, in Matthew 28. Uh, and then arguing that because of that, uh, water baptism, just like the teaching ministry of the church must go hand in hand with that teaching and then must continue on until uh, the end of the day. And in each of these chapters, and as he as the outline kind of builds out from there, he will deal with uh, objections and answers to those objections every time, which makes it a very useful book, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, makes it very accessible because almost any question you can think of, he throws in in every section and then answers it with like you said, some either scripture or a, a turn to tradition, uh, sometimes in in ways that feel a little strange to us, but certainly uh, fill out the argument. Yeah. 
Um, after that, he goes into uh, several other aspects of baptism. So he deals with uh, first the uh, the word baptizo and and it's uh, the fact that it means immersion. And then uh, moving from there, he'll deal with all kinds of uh, tangential issues on that. Can you deal with uh, sprinkling? Can you do those things? Or are we called to do it in a different way? Uh, and he harps on that for the next several chapters. Uh, finally, he comes back around to uh, not just the, the mode of baptism, uh, but then to the proper recipients. And so he'll spend the, the, the latter half, uh, really maybe, maybe two thirds of the, the book, starting in chapter six, uh, with the proper subjects of baptism. And so there he's going to go into not only uh, the fact that it's it's credo baptism, uh, that there has to be belief, but he'll also deal within the objections of what about believers' children, which then uh, is is where the, the question of pedo baptism and especially of the, the particular variety variety of pedo baptism that he's dealing with amongst his um, close allies across the the aisle in various denominations there at the end of the 17th century uh, those are the, really the arguments he's he's looking at he's not arguing so much against the the Roman Catholic version there is uh, he does deal with that he's very well aware of their theology but it's really an argument against these that are holding to a direct covenant relationship between the the parents and the uh, believing parents and then their children that he's dealing with and he'll deal with that all the way through until the end of the book and and uh, deals with then uh, constantly going back to these objections and answers and really like you said earlier exhaustively deals with uh, the issue uh, in a way that is is pretty much unseen elsewhere yeah. Are there any particular arguments that he makes that you find just really key to the whole argument of the, the work or that you think are have sort of fallen out of use these days to defend credo baptism? Is there something that really exemplifies Keech's mode of argument? Any, anything that you would point out that's just the, the key or linchpin um, to the book or to a section? Yeah, so I mean, I, I do think uh, he starts at the Great Commission for a reason, and uh, we often, I, I, I don't know that we get into a, a lot of debates about uh, credo baptism versus pedo baptism, at least in the world that I live in, just because I'm on a Baptist campus. You know, you're kind of assuming that coming into it, but uh, but we do have plenty of people who are are kind of walking through this in their own life, as you mentioned earlier, pastors who are uh, in one camp or the other trying to figure out what, it, what do we actually believe here. Uh, and I don't see that argument actually being made very often. Obviously, mm -hmm. the word baptism shows up, but the return to that understanding of the Great Commission, certainly you don't see it uh, in the 17th century very often, again, because it's, it hasn't been very long since the church at that point has seen the Great Commission as applying to uh, the 17th century church at that point. Um, and so Keech is really taking that a step further in a way that uh, that honestly needs some more work. It's it's one of the projects that I have kind of pushed off to the side, but uh, need to come back around to uh, and seeing that uh, how much of a legacy that one has in the Baptist world and, and how original it actually is. It feels quite original. Uh, and I've done a lot of work on, on the use of the Great Commission uh, prior to that. But haven't zoned in on Keech on that one yet. But for me, that one is... Uh, ultimately, he comes back around to it constantly, and that is the the final for him. I, I don't know that you have to go anywhere else. That passage alone would tell him this is how it has to be, uh, that believer's baptism, it's tied to teaching. Because baptism is tied to teaching, it requires there be a, a an audience that can receive that teaching and can demonstrate the receipt of that teaching in order to be baptized. 
And of course, then he ties that in elsewhere to to various other places. But he also deals with the obvious uh, responses. So he knows all the arguments. He's been involved in the polemics of uh, the Baptist world for quite some time at this point. So really, uh, for the better part of his mature life anyway, for 30 years that he's been involved in these uh, uh, conversations. And so he's familiar with some of the others that are making the arguments, Toombs and Danvers and uh, Featley on, on those guys fall on both sides of the argument. Uh, and he will uh, deal with all of their exceptions and all of their, what they'll call animadversions. So these, uh, these arguments against him, he'll deal with all of those uh, and he'll come, come at them in a way that allows them to see, look, not only does scripture, uh, go against what you're saying. And so he'll deal with the logic of circumcision argument from uh, the old covenant. And he'll argue as to why that's not actually assigned. It's not the same as baptism and can't be for some very good reasons. We can get into those details in a second. Uh, but then he'll also point them back to their own tradition and argue from within their tradition. Look, some of these guys that you're saying uh, are your heroes are arguing the same thing that I'm arguing. Uh, and ultimately, if you'll take them uh, and at their word, and then he'll he'll proof text, pull out those arguments for them, proof text in, in a I, I think usually it's in a very honest way. There are some places where you go, all right, <laughs> yeah, you, you pulled something out. If we go back to the context, there's a little bit of, of change that can go on here. Uh, but hey, you know, we're, we're all in, uh, guilty of that at some point, in, at least in our just general argument making, That's if we're not careful. Uh, but for the most part, he's actually he's quoting them well uh, and quoting them in their context, quoting them in their uh, their own words and then allowing it to show, look, this isn't the way that your own tradition has held to this. You can get there if you want to, but but I'm not that far removed. And he constantly brings the Baptist back around to that side of things. Yeah. Yeah. You get the sense in anything you read by Keach that he's both meticulous and also able to demonstrate the forest from the trees you know he's got an eye to the details and to the whole thing whether he's talking about interpretation or baptism or some some other aspect of, of ministry or theology he can he can zone in on a particular point and deal with it very thoroughly but they can relate it always back to the the larger point he's trying to make yeah, I get the feeling with Keach, and it's one of the things that I really like about him. And, and, and like I mentioned before, Keach is certainly not a perfect figure. Uh, plenty of issues within his church, but uh, he he understands first of all his limitations, uh, which is is always helpful. Uh, but he also recognizes the stewardship that he's been given to go beyond those limitations as much as he possibly can to really push against them. So he makes sure that he has access to books. You know, he he uses. Uh, there's a, a library system that's been set up for the Baptist uh, uh, ministers at that point that he uses regularly and is able to gain access to books that he otherwise couldn't because he's not part of the the Oxbridge system. He can't get into the universities and use their right. libraries and that kind of thing. Um, but he and he recognizes that his congregation is a lot of the same type of people. They're smart, but they're not necessarily well educated. Uh, and so he needs to bring them along. And so he does that in a, in a really uh, good fashion and is quite a model for us, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So in terms of gold refined, I also think that there are a number of places where you see Keech's interpretive method sort of shine. Uh, some of gold refined is, is pretty standard fare for arguments for credo baptism. Um, but as you've mentioned, there are a number of places where it's distinct. Um, we can come back to this in just a minute. But one of the things that I, I thought about while you were talking is that it's, it's so interesting that Keach zones in on the Great Commission 
and and there's a sense in which he could make his entire argument from for Credo yeah. Betts from the Gay Commission. You could say the same thing about early church arguments for the doctrine of the Trinity. There's a sense in, I mean, they keep returning to the Great Commission, and there's a sense in which yep. you could argue for the entire doctrine of the Trinity just from the Great Commission. You know, so I, I think that um, that's one one example of a conversation we'll have in a minute about his sort of connection to the great tradition. Um, but, but that's just an example of how I think Keech helps us model, and I'm getting way ahead of myself, but I think Keech helps <laughs> us model being distinctively Baptist while also being an Orthodox Christian. Um, yeah. and, and those two things are not mutually exclusive. And there's, there's a big push today from and really, you know, within Baptist circles, it's been a push for the, at least the last hundred years, if not longer than that. There's a push to see Baptist as a kind of distinct movement from outside of yeah. the great tradition. And I think there's also a movement afoot today, especially among um, certain sectors of uh, Reformed theology that want to see Baptists as not connected to the great tradition either. They're just, sure. they're sort of spiritual Anabaptists who just got me and my Bible in my closet and came up with something that was brand new. And yeah. neither of those, like from within Baptist life and from outside of Baptist life, it's just not true that early Baptists saw themselves or some early Baptists, many early Baptists saw themselves as completely distinct, separate from, uh, you know, independent of the Christian tradition that had been passed down to them to that point. That's yeah. Just not, no, they're they're constantly trying to place themselves themselves yep. in that uh, long line. Now there are obvious exceptions. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, those are easy to point out, but for the vast majority of on both sides, well, not, it's not a both sides, but on, on all sides of the Baptist world of the 17th century, you find that the constant refrain that we are not trying to do something new rather than the, the argument that we are something new or something totally different. They, right. they are trying to put themselves in with the, the larger, uh, even the larger contemporary, let alone the larger tradition that goes back generations. So, yeah. yeah and so, for, for me, you know, one of the things that I focus on is hermeneutics and, and theological method. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, one of my main interests in Keech uh, is the fact that he is a very clear example of not just theological connection to the tradition, but hermeneutical connection. So his interpretive method is one that feels often more like uh, a early church, medieval, even some reformation interpretation that it feels like the kind of modernist interpretive practices you get today. And, and, you know, I, I'll say briefly, I, I don't think that means that Keech doesn't pay attention to the details of the text. He actually very clearly pays attention to the details of the text. It's a, it's a misunderstanding of, I think, uh, you know, historic classical interpret interpretive practices to think that people aren't paying attention to the details. Just go read origin. You know, I mean, like he's, yeah. <laughs> he's all in there. Um, but Keech is the same way. Uh, and so in gold refined, and you've mentioned some of this, um, but he's, he's paying very particular attention to the text itself. Uh, you know, when he's talking about, as you mentioned earlier on, uh, when he's talking about the word baptizo, uh, he is trying to define that word in a very particular way from scripture. He quotes um, a bunch of different Old Testament passages 
Genesis 37, Exodus 12, Leviticus 4, Leviticus 17, Deuteronomy 33, number 16, 2 Kings 5, um, to define baptizo in relation to um, the, the Septuagint's use of that term as a translation of the Hebrew word tabal. So he's, you know, he's, yep. he, he's got all of this very specific exegetical strategy going on here where he's trying to locate meaning in the details of the text. But that doesn't that doesn't limit what else he wants to do in interpretation. Um, well, yeah, I, absolutely. In in the in the sense that um, the details of the text are intended to bring the reader into the Christological referent, the the tropological immediacy of the text and to its eschatological end. So it's yeah. not that he's dis- disconnecting meaning from the details, but that the details are pointing to something greater than themselves, yeah, namely, namely Christ. It's not a limitation that stops you. It yeah. is the, the foundation from which then you go further. And that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot, I think, uh, for our own sakes that we we miss out on because we've limited ourselves from that modern context, but by that, the philosophically modern context of only being able to stop where the, the details are. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's quite fulfilling. I think actually, when you, when you read this kind of hermeneutic and you, you start realizing a, hey, the logic works or he's not being illogical, he's not going against reason, uh, but it it's, clearly going beyond just like you said just those details that are there and so uh, it's allowing you to see the fuller understanding in, in many ways so yeah, yeah. that's right and I, I think you know i, I want to be really clear here um neither keach nor i nor you are saying that there's some meaning that's unattached to the details of the text right that's not that's that's not a, in, t- in any way what any of no. us are saying um it is to say though, that understanding the details of the text is always in service of understanding the meaning of the text. And for classical interpreters of scripture, the meaning of the text is always Jesus, the implications for Jesus's people, his church, and the promise for Jesus's people when he comes back. Yep, that's like that's always the meaning of the text. It's how the details convey that meaning, but but that's always the meaning. And so, you know, Keach can, Keach can and does in Gold Refined, but also elsewhere. But in Gold Refined, he can and does see each text really as a reference ultimately to Christ. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So I I just think I, I think he's a model. Uh, well, and his, his hermeneutical textbook is really helpful at that just to get a feel for what is he trying to do. So that tropologia sometimes is published as troposchemologia, which is part parts of it. And so um, it, it, it demonstrates uh, exactly what he's seeing in, in all of these uh, uh, types and uh, allegories that he sees in scripture, uh, all of them just pointing to constantly coming back to Christ, the Trinity. I mean, it's, it's always these details, like you said, that, that point us back to uh, the glorification of God. And it, it is, uh, it makes sense. It's it, right. It's not, this is not some sort of sit down in your, in your closet, like you mentioned earlier and get some kind of prophetic word. It's not that it's a very organized system there, there are uh, clear boundaries. You don't go beyond, right? It's not 
not just anything goes. It's not sit down and tell me what you think about the, the passage, uh, but it's certainly beyond just the, uh, the the bare facts or the bare details that are there in the in the text itself. It's That's understanding right. that it's there's a point to it beyond that. Yeah. So one example of Keach's interpretive practice that will also kind of transition us into our, our last topic that we want to talk about um, is his reference to the Exodus narrative. Mm. And so in, in Keach's reference to the Exodus narrative in Gold Refined, um, he's addressing the Pado baptist argument that infants were brought through the Red Sea. Yep. Uh, and so in, in making this argument, he, he agrees with the reading of the Old Testament that Israel going through the Red Sea is a type for baptism. Yep. And so that's one of those places where I think Keach is demonstrating a kind of Catholicity with the rest of the church in agreeing, this is how we should read scripture. And here's a particular instance in which I am agreeing with the classical interpretive practice that leads to this reading of scripture, which is to say, yes, what happens to Israel is a type for the church. Yes, what happens with Israel has tropological immediacy that is it has a moral the text has a moral sense that applies to the people of god today um, and so the story of israel crossing the red sea isn't just an historical narrative it is but it's also a narrative that teaches us theology and calls us to right practice and keach says the practice that this is calling us to is baptism yeah but but then he also so in that in that sense he's showing us um, what it means to be connected to the Christian tradition, especially with respect to interpretive practices. But he also shows us how he can then um, distinguish the credo Baptist position from pedo baptism, even in that kind of Catholic interpretation, because he says, all right, so you say that uh, you say that Israel crossing through the Red Sea is a type for baptism. You say that babies were among the mix and so, therefore, infants all the way through el the elderly are baptized, uh, and this, so this is a type for the church's baptism, where we baptize infants as well as those who come to faith later. Um, and he says, okay, let's think about that for a minute. Uh, if that may justify infant baptism, this is a quote from him, <laughs> if that may justify infant baptism, it will allow you to baptize unbelievers also. And then I think he's kind of alluding to Jonah here. <laughs> he says, besides much cattle. So in other words, okay, okay, yeah, uh, there were babies there. Yeah. There were also cows. Yep. And there were also unregenerate Israelites. So, and also the Egyptians drowned. Were they baptized? Like what's, you know, what's going on here? Right. So um, he kind of takes the argument and agrees with it. And then also turns it around a bit and says, this is actually what this entails. If you hold to this, this sort of generalized typology, you have to be more specific than that. Right. Um, and, and that's how he comes to the credo Baptist position. So I think Keach is a model for us in terms of what it means to pursue Baptist Catholicity. Um, it, it's connecting to the great tradition, uh, but it's also at the same time, distinguishing our position namely on credo baptism, on uh, the local church and congregationalism, and on the relationship between church and state um, in a way that doesn't 
disconnect us entirely from the rest of the church, but shows how we're just a distinct movement within it. Um, and so, you know, just to, to use that as a segue, um, what kinds of sort of general connections to the great tradition, other than, you know, the interpretive practices I've pointed out, what, what else would you point to in terms of how Keach tries to demonstrate that he wants to be connected to the church Catholic? Yeah, so a couple of things there. One is that what you're d- demonstrating from just the Exodus narrative, and he does that in numerous other places where he takes the this argument uh, that would would narrowly define uh, the the either the old covenant practice circumcision, uh, the uh, tr- transmission through the uh, Red Sea, or even the new covenant practice and, and moving uh, through that and dealing with even uh, the Lord's Supper, those kinds of things. Where he takes that and he just he says, look, uh, obviously this has to be more. Dis- distinctly uh, defined than you're allowing for when you're allowing for pedo-baptism. But constantly the argument that's going there is we're not trying to dismiss anything in the past or dismiss everything in the past. We're simply trying to continue to reform. So he sees himself as the next step, not just him, but his comrades as the next step of this kind of reformation. So it's it's not an anti-tradition. It's a, look, they got it right this far and we're standing on their shoulders and these are great things. And so he quotes all over the place. And to answer your your question more broadly, uh, not only is his scripture knowledge exhaustive, I mean, the guy is remembering that he doesn't have access to a computer to be able to type these things in and, you know, just find every, every reference to baptizo he can. Uh, He, he is able to, to quote from all aspects of, of scripture and to spend time doing that incredibly well, but he's also quoting from uh, the, the tradition itself. And so he quotes from Augustine and from from the obvious ones, Augustine, uh, and Calvin and Luther and those guys, but he goes into, uh, he quotes from all kinds of people that others wouldn't necessarily uh, be expecting. So I wrote down just a few uh, in a just a quick look at them, but I mean, you could go into all kinds of details about it, but from Cyprian to Eulogius to Ludovivus, I mean, the, the, the names just keep flowing. And um, many of those, even for church historians today have to look up, okay, who is this guy? Cause he's not all that well known. Um, now that demonstrates multiple things there, but at the very least, it demonstrates that he sees this long line of uh, Christians who are passing on the faith from one generation to the next, and and they don't get it all correct. And he's okay saying, look, there's some things that need to continue to be reformed, but there's the the sin qua non of the essential aspect of the gospel that's there that we can build off of. And we want to continue getting it better, just like we want to celebrate that these guys corrected the mistakes that had been passed on to them. Uh, we want to continue doing that as well. And so he sees himself in that light, not as a rebel who's out to, to raise the, the ground and start from scratch. He's not doing that at all. He's building on the, the edifice that he's received. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, all of that, uh, I think, is is demonstrable uh, in his interpretive practices, but also in his theology, where he's constantly referring to the exegetical arguments and the, the kinds of theological language, the theological arguments, the philosophical issues related to classical Christian theism. Um, he, he, he is a classical Trinitarian through and through. Uh, <laughs> Chalcedonian Christology, et cetera. Uh, you know, and, and I think it's important to point out in these kinds of conversations, and you mentioned this a minute ago, um, in, in terms of, you know, always reforming, um, 
he also is reformational in the sense that he sees himself as in line with the reformers uh, in, in terms of uh, the doctrines of salvation and the doctrine of the church uh, in the sense of what the church is and its relation to Christ. Now, in terms of polity, more particularly, um, and in terms of corpus perixtum and those sorts of issues, obviously he's a credo Baptist. So that's, that's distinct in his ecclesiology, mm-hmm. but in terms of sort of broader ecclesiological articulations, especially as they're related to reformation issues, he's, he's reformational and he's, he's definitely reformational in the doctrine of salvation. So, you know, in, in terms of promoting Baptist Catholicity, here's a guy who's trying to draw on the Christian tradition as it relates to doctrine of the Trinity, doctrine of Christology, even other major doctrines besides that, those are the two main ones that we're bringing forward from the uh, patristic and medieval eras. But then he's also reformational. He's drawing on all these reformed folks and, and interacting with them in, in appreciation in, in many respects, especially with respect to the doctrine of salvation and sort of broader trends in ecclesiology. So, you know, Keach to me uh, is one of the models um, I, I think it, you know, along with that, it's important that we point out how he squares credo baptism with this kind of Catholic yeah. impulse. So just, you know, maybe to, to end our time, how would you say that uh, Keach does that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, that's the key to really all of his ministry is this understanding that the, the focus of the church uh, and the focus of the church's calling, as he demonstrates here in the Great Commission, uh, but he does it in multiple other places as well, that the focus is on a, an understood faith that is passed on to those who can receive it. Uh, and so that's his his whole goal, his whole mission, his whole uh, ministry in life is to those people who can hear him, can read him, can understand him, and can receive what is being taught. Uh, so it's a constant understanding that Christianity is a, a religion of uh, those who understand. Uh, and so it's our call to bring them to a place to get them to the environment where they can understand as much as possible. Uh, and so that includes then raising up children. Obviously, he's not uh, he's not dismissing kids. In fact, he um, writes not only as catechisms, but uh, instructors for kids, so primers for kids to, to to learn even as little things as their ABCs and and moving beyond that uh, to basic math skills, those kinds of things, but alongside that understanding the gospel so that from the earliest age where they can, that they understand the gospel. And he sees that really as playing out the, the same mission that the church has always had. That's right. Well, thank you, Dr. Arnold, for joining us today. We're really grateful for your time. Uh, we'd encourage our listeners, if you have not read Gold Refined, go read it. Read everything Keach wrote. You'll be, you'll be blessed. Uh, I'll end this as I usually do with the grace. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.